Go ahead and grab your Bible. We are in Philippians chapter 1. We spent the last couple of weeks giving you some preliminary information about Philippians. Some of you uh, are ready to move on to the text. Is that right? Kelvin, Laney's not in here. I would ask her. She want another preliminary week because Laney would tell me the truth. No, get into the text already. Praise God. All right, so that's what we're going to do. Ready? Philippians chapter 1, verse 1. We are in the text. No more background info here, although I'll squeeze some in as reminders for you along the way because I cannot help myself. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Christ Jesus. Those are the servants, Paul and Timothy, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi. We've talked about Philippi and the kind of place it is. So because of our two weeks of preliminary information, you know who Paul and Timothy are. You know what Philippi is like. I told you what a bondservant is. So you understand who these servants are. By the way, Paul is writing this letter, not Paul and Timothy writing. Okay? Sometimes a little confusing. Timothy is with Paul. He's Paul's co-worker here. Uh, in this way, he sends greetings along with Paul in this letter. But this is a letter from Paul and Paul alone. And they are the servants, and he's writing to the saints. Who are the saints? The saints are uh, the saints, the holy ones. It could be said in Philippi. Remember we read in Acts 16 who some of these people are. You've got the demon-possessed girl that Paul turned and rebuked. You've got Lydia that Paul uh, shared the gospel with at the river. You've got the jailer and his family. You've got, you've got an idea of who these saints are. Now let me tell you here, because the word saint in our day and time has found somewhat of an unfortunate definition. It does not mean that they are perfect. It could also be translated the holy ones. In both of those words, they have connotations in our day that they were somehow perfect or somehow that they were elite, but that's not the case. It doesn't have the uh, what's come to be sort of uh, through the Catholic tradition, uh, the understanding that we have of it. They were holy in the sense that they were set apart to be used by God for his divine purposes. They were called by God. And God sees them in Christ as perfect, yes. But not, Paul's not saying here to all the perfect ones in their life that they were running around and they were just these, these perfect saints in our way of thinking. Does that make sense? All right, so they're just like you and I. There's another way to think of this. This is to the church. This is to the body of Christ in Philippi. Now, let me, let me say this. As we go through chapter 1, because that's what we're going to do this week, I gave you at the end of last week uh, a four-part basic outline of how we were going to run through these four short chapters. And here's what we're going to do. These are the four chapter uh, outline titles that I gave you this week. We're going to look at chapter one, Christ is Paul's life. And that's sort of the thread that we're going to that we're going to go through this whole chapter one on. And I'm going to try not to get caught up in some of the amazing details. And that's going to be difficult for me. But I'm going to try and just weave this thread that Christ is Paul's life throughout this letter. And let me say this to you. This is, as I told you before, the most personal of Paul's epistles. By many scholars' estimation, this is the most personal of Paul's letters to a real people. And as such, it's not going to be this well, well, I'm sure it's well thought out, but it's not going to be this, this, uh, this systematic, argumentative type of document. Okay? It's a personal letter. It is a heartfelt Emotion-filled 
loving letter to a people in a certain place at a certain time that Paul had intimate relationship with, okay? So I say that because I don't want you to be under any illusion that as we go through this, everything's going to perfectly fit like this well-thought-out, argumentative uh, sort of treatise that Paul would put together, much like many of his other letters, like Romans. He, he addresses certain issues, and he has certain arguments, and he, he uses certain uh, information, and he combats uh, false teachings in the church in certain places. And it's very, very... Um, very intentional, argumentative language, almost like a debate. This is not Philippians. Here you're going to find Paul pouring his heart out to a people he loves. You see, chapter 1, Christ is Paul's life. And you're going to see a letter to a people who have found, well, they found out the same thing about Christ, that he should be their, their very life. So you saw the servants, Paul and Timothy. You saw the saints, the church at Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. Let me show you the salutation, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God. Interesting that he puts this in here. He puts it in many of his letters. But very interesting here because you understand Paul is in jail once again. And so to talk about the God of grace and peace when the God of grace and peace has him once again under lock and key is an amazing statement in and of itself. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all remembrance of you. Always offering prayer, not just prayers, but prayers with joy in my every prayer for you all. Paul loves these people. There's a certain affection that he has for these people that we can see right here at the outset of this letter. Why does he feel this way about these people? Verse 5. Always offering prayer with joy in every prayer for you all in view of, here's the reason why he feels this way, in view of your koinonia, literally your fellowship or your sharing, some of your translations may say your participation in the what? In the gospel. I feel this way. I'm overjoyed in every recollection of you. When I pray for you, it brings joy to my heart. Why? Because in, in my thoughts about you, here's what I think about. I think about your, your participation in the gospel that Paul, chapter 1, has given his life to. Paul has given his life to Christ and the gospel of Christ. Now, these people, they have it in them. That they are not just in, they're not just bystanders. They're not just along for the ride. Paul says you are active, intentional participants. They're in the game. They're in the game. Why does why does Paul have such affection for these people? Their participation in the gospel. It's not just uh, it's not just every now and then. Look what it says at the end of verse five. It's from the first day. Acts 16, when he, when he marched into Philippi, couldn't find a synagogue, went to the river, Lydia was saved, the demon-possessed girl was saved, Acts 16, the jailer was saved. From the first day, they threw Paul in jail in Philippi. From his first encounter with these people, he's found them to be active participants in the game of God's kingdom work. 
Paul is about Christ and Christ's proclamation and exaltation. We're going to see that. And these people were in the same game with Paul. Not just every now and then, but from the first day until now. Verse 6, look what Paul says here. He's got confidence in something here. For I'm confident of this very thing. What very thing? That he who began a good work in you, who is that? That's God the Father. Began a good work in you will most positively, most assuredly, definitely perfect it or complete it or finish it until the day of Christ Jesus, until the return of Christ. Paul knows something about these people based on their participation with him in the gospel. He says, I know something and I'm confident based on your participation, based that you're in the game with me doing the work, not just talking the talk. He says, I'm very confident of something that God is at work in you and what he's doing in you. I'm I'm confident he is going to finish what he's begun. From salvation to sanctification, Paul's confident that God is at work in these people. He goes on to explain why he is so confident. Verse 7, for it's only right for me to feel this way. It's only right. Why is that? Because I have you in my heart. Now, do you see the depth here? Do you see the, the personalness of this letter? Paul says, I have these people in my heart. Now, just think about for a second. Look up. Just, just think about for a second. Who historically, how much we respect the Apostle Paul and what he's done uh, as one of the original apostles and what he did for our faith. I mean, most of the letters you have here in your New Testament are written by who? Paul, okay? Uh, next to Christ, probably the most respected believer in history, all right? Now, for that Paul to say this, It's only right for me to feel the way I feel about you. Because you know what? You found your way into the depths of my heart. Oh, that he could say that about us. He keeps going here. Verse 7. Why have they made their way into the depths of Paul's heart? Since both in my imprisonment, way back in Philippi, and now currently in Rome, where he is in prison again, But not just when I've been in prison, but in in my defense and in my confirmation of the what? Of the gospel. You all are what? My translation says partakers. They're participants. Verse 5. Now he's going to say, you know what? It's only right that I feel this way, that I have you in the depths of my heart. Because from the very beginning, no matter whether I'm in jail, whether I'm out preaching the gospel, no matter what. I found that you're not just participants, you're you're partakers. You're active in the work of the proclamation and exaltation of Christ and his good news. You all are partakers of grace with me. Look how he wraps up this section here. Verse 8, for God's my witness. It's as if Paul, he, he swears to this next statement. How I long for you. Again, imagine the Apostle Paul saying this and this being true of you, of me. How I long for you with the affection, literally the inward parts or the bowels of Christ Jesus. You know what he's saying? 
He's saying, I, I can't imagine that Christ even loves you any more than I do. He equates his love to this people with the love that Christ has for them and the depth of love that Christ has for them. And it's as if it's as if it's just this this living thing inside of him that is just just breaking out. Said in my gut. I love this people. Christ loves this people. I love this church. Why? Because they love Christ. To the point that they're they're participants, they're partakers in what? The work of Christ. They're not just sideline Christians. Paul loves these people because they're in the game with him. I'll tell you specifically in just a couple minutes how they were partakers and participants. In nine through eleven, he's going to now after he commends them in nine through eleven, he's going to he's going to issue a. Uh, a little bit of a concern. And it's just a hint of concern that just bubbles out of his affection for these people. But in 9 through 11, we're going to get a glimpse of what his concern, if he has any, for the church at Philippi. We're going to get a glimpse of what his concern for this church is. By the end of chapter 1, we're going to see a, a little bit bigger of a picture of what his concern is. And by chapter 4, he's going to get very specific as to what his concern for this church is. Verse 9. After saying that Christ loves them, I love them because they love Christ. They love his gospel. Look at what he says in verse nine. And now this is what I I'm praying for you, that your love. You see the transition here? You see the shift? And it just comes out of Paul. I love this church so much. Now, listen, my prayer for you is that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge, complete knowledge, and in all discernment, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes comes from where? Righteousness that comes through Christ Jesus. For whose glory? For whose glory is this to be? End of verse 11, to the glory and praise of God. Now, I'm not going to stay there long, but just see that that's a glimpse of Paul's concern for these people out of an expression of his love for them. And we'll, we'll detail that out later. Verse 12, from 12 to 26, Paul's going to really just flip things upside down. 12 to 26, uh, he's going to say things that are, humanly speaking, ludicrous. Paul's world is apparently, from what he's going to say here, his world is just um, the complete opposite of what the majority of our worlds look like. And it starts out in the very, the very first verse of this paragraph. Now, I want you to know, and here's what he's doing. He's gone from commending them, expressing his concern for them. Now, he's going to go into a section where he wants to comfort them. And he's going to comfort them with his own pain. Okay? And that's an odd thing. But watch this. Verse 12. Now, I want you to know, brethren, as if to say you need this information. You need to know this because it will help you. I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances. Go back to the last couple of weeks. What are Paul's circumstances? He's locked up. <laughs> They're not good circumstances. He's in he's he's in discomfort. He's in pain. He's in jail. 
It's not an ideal situation for him. Come what may, it's well with my soul is, is where we enter right here in the life of Paul. Now, I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances have turned out. That phrase turned out alludes to the fact that it hasn't been a quick process. It doesn't just happen overnight. But eventually, he says, things have turned out for the greater progress of the what? Of the gospel. So here's what Paul says. He flips, he flips reality on its head. Me being in jail, me suffering for the gospel, for the God of grace and peace, who I was proclaiming and exalting, who got me in this position, my circumstances, you know what? Probably for the best. Church at Philippi, here's what you need to know. He brings them this section now of comfort that my present circumstances, as bad as you know they are, and because the church of Philippi were participants and partakers with him, they hadn't left Paul high and dry, they knew well of his circumstances from the time he was in Philippi to Thessalonica to now he's in jail in Rome. All right, They know well his circumstances. And here's why this is important. Paul's circumstances for the church of Philippi and all the other churches that he wrote to, incidentally, Paul's circumstances are like precursors to what their potential circumstance will be if they commit their life to Christ as Paul has committed his life to Christ. Does that make sense? So here's what Paul's life says to these churches. If you give your life fully and completely over to the proclamation and exaltation of Christ as Paul has, you might find yourself very likely in the same position that Paul finds himself. The Philippian church watched him go to prison be stripped naked, beaten in Philippi to start their church. He goes on and he keeps finding himself in the same predicament, preaching the gospel, beaten, thrown in jail. That's my present circumstance. In the church of Philippi, you got to believe they're sitting back saying, this is going to be coming our way if we follow in the footsteps of Paul. As Paul follows in the footsteps of Christ. And maybe it's starting to click for them. But as went Christ to the cross, as goes Paul to his death, well, what about us? So this section here, this section of comfort, Paul's going to say, you know what? These things that, that are seemingly bad, let me, let, me, let me put them in a realistic perspective. Now, some commentators, they choose a different outline uh, for uh, these four chapters. Some of them, very interesting, uh, choose to outline this, not as I have, but that chapter 1 is uh, Paul's mind of Christ. And so he's going to help them here get their mind right, in a sense. Get their mind wrapped around the reality of what it means to give your life fully over to Christ. So look at what he says here. Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, me being in jail, all this bad stuff, you know what, it's turned out turned out for a greater progress of the gospel. And he explains. Verse 13, my imprisonment in the cause of Christ. Literally, it says, so that my imprisonment in Christ. You see how Paul views his imprisonment? It's not his imprisonment in Rome. It's not his imprisonment in the hands of his oppressors. He's in prison for the sake of Christ. 
Very interesting way to put that. So that my imprisonment, verse 13, and the cause of Christ has become well known through the whole praetorian guard and to everyone else. You know what he says there? My imprisonment has furthered the gospel to the lost. The praetorian guard there, those were the Roman guards under a pagan religion, under a pagan government. He says it's, it's impacted these people. What was intended for evil has turned out for what? For good. And normally we don't get this. The world doesn't get this. But Paul's he's flipping it, he's flipping it over here. He's helping us to see what the reality of the situation is. Verse 14, not only to the lost, but look at what it does for the brethren. And that most of the brethren, trusting in the Lord because of my imprisonment, have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. What does Paul realize here? That although this may be a bad day for him, it's a good day in the cause of Christ. He's able to look past his present circumstances and say, you know what? Look at what this is doing for the gospel's sake in the lost. Look at what it's doing for the sake of the gospel. Even in the believers. We've got more participation. We've got more people partaking in the gospel. Because of because of this. How do you think Paul feels about his imprisonment? Is he bitter towards it? How do you think Paul feels towards his imprisonment? Keep, keep that in mind as we, as we continue here. Verse 15. Some, to be sure, are preaching Christ even from envy and strife, but some also from goodwill. The latter, the latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm appointed for the defense of the gospel. The former, however, those are the people who are preaching out of envy and strife. They proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition rather than from pure motives thinking to cause me distress in my imprisonment. Um, Most scholars believe that what Paul's talking about here is that as he, as one of the leading, uh, leading apostles in his day, as he gets thrown into jail, there are others who step up and out of, out of envy, out of selfish ambition, think that they might, they might find opportunity to take Paul's place. And uh, again, Paul flips our thinking on its head. I mean, that would probably hack most of us off. Paul sees his imprisonment turning out for good. He sees people preaching out of envy and strife, out of selfish ambition. Look at what he says about it in verse 18. What then? Well, only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. Christ is proclaimed. You know what he says? Some of these guys are doing it for the wrong reasons. Maybe they think they can take my place. That's fine. I imagine he really didn't care about his position or his power or his influence. He says, you know what? Ah, I'm not going to worry about that either. You know, I see that God is doing a work through having me here in jail. And uh, Christ is being proclaimed. 
Even this doesn't affect him. Do you see all the things that Paul's willing to give up here? You see all the things that Paul's willing to give up about himself and about his life? Only that Christ is proclaimed. That's the only thing that matters to Paul. It's the hinge of this chapter. Only that Christ is proclaimed. And in this I will rejoice. In what? In this. What this? Not just Christ, but that Christ is proclaimed. You see, there's no room in Paul's heart, mind, or life for the Christian who would sit on the sideline and not be participants or partakers in proclaiming that very Christ that they claim to love. Amen? Very specifically, I rejoice in this. What? The proclamation of Christ. Because of my love for Christ, I'm living for His proclamation. That's why I'm here. And he goes on to explain this a little bit. Watch this. Watch what he does here. Yes, and I will rejoice. For I know that this will turn out for my, literally, my salvation. Some of your translations say my deliverance. And I'm not going to tell you what he's saying deliverance is from here yet. But let's, let's go to the next phrase. He's going he's to tell us how he thinks he's going to be saved or delivered. And then we'll figure out what he's going to be delivered from, okay? Because it may not be what you think. I know that this will turn out for my salvation or my deliverance. Here's how. Through your prayers, Paul agrees with James that the prayers of the righteous availeth much. So he calls on the prayers of the saints. But he also trusts in, what's it say next? The provision of the Spirit. The prayers of the saints. Now the provision of the Spirit, that word provision, it means that the Spirit will lavish upon me Everything I need. It's the Greek word korege. We get the word choreography from this. In Paul's day, groups would go around and they would put on plays and they would put on shows and they would be, it would be extravagant choreography in these shows. And they would begin to outdo each other in how extravagant, how elaborate these shows, how beautiful, how much money they would pour into these shows. And these guys that would put these things on came to be known as because they they lavished everything they had into these shows to outdo one another. That's the word Paul uses here. Through the provision, the extraordinary, extravagant, elaborate, the overboard provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be Put to shame. So he says, I trust that I'll be delivered. More specifically, that I'll not be put to shame in what? In anything, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. So what is Paul asking for deliverance from? You think he's asking for deliverance or salvation from being in jail? I mean, that's got to be in the guy's heart somewhere, right? I don't think so. I think although Paul would love to be out of jail so he could come back and be in person with the churches that he has begun, I think the best way to make sense of this passage is to look at it in light of verse 20 and 21 and the rest of how he's going to explain it here, that 
that his deliverance, that he trusts in the prayers of the saints, the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, his expectation and his hope is that, that the Spirit gives him provision and that the prayers of the saints keep him from being put to shame. How might Paul be put to shame? He's going to say, there's potential for me to be shamed in my body. How so? That Paul would relent. That under the immense pressure that, that it is being in prison for the, for, the, for the gospel itself, he says, but that with all boldness, Christ will, even now, what does that mean? Even now, under hardship, in prison, in pain, that even now, as always, even when I'm, even when I'm having a good day, his prayer is that he'd be delivered from the shame that under, the, under duress, Christ not be exalted in his body. What's Paul's prayer here? What is he calling for the prayers of the saints and provision of the Spirit for? That he wouldn't relent. The task that God has given him to proclaim and exalt Christ. That Christ is proclaimed, and in this I rejoice, and yes, I will rejoice. With boldness, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body. And how do you know he doesn't just want to get out of jail? Look at what he says at the end of verse 20. He says, whether by life or by death. A guy who can say that, I don't think really is hung up on being in jail. He's not a guy who just is praying that God get him out of his pain. He's not a guy who's just praying that God get him out of his present circumstances. He's saying, God, don't, don't let me falter under the pressure that I'm under. Lord, come what may, life or death, only that Christ would be exalted no matter what happens. Whether I have to live through this pain or whether it goes all the way to my death, but that Christ would be exalted. That's what I'll rejoice in. Read verse 21. You know it well. Read it in context of the last section. Many of your Bibles separate it out into a next paragraph, but now read it in context. He says, you know what? For me to live, to live, to go on living this life is Christ. Literally, the passage takes out the verb. It says, for to me to live Christ. My life, one fail swoop, Jesus. Do you, you see it? For me to live, Jesus. You've got to understand that, church. What he's saying to comfort those at Philippi. You've got to understand that my life is Christ. Plain and simple. For me to live is Christ. And you know what? Even if I die, in the context of what he's just said, whether by life or death, only that Christ would be exalted in my body, that I wouldn't relent, that I wouldn't put myself to shame, that I, that I, wouldn't, that I, wouldn't, that I wouldn't falter under the pressure. Because whether in life or death, for to me to live is Christ and to die, it's gain. Paul was not a pessimist. Okay? Paul was not a pessimist. But again, Paul is 
He's gone a little crazy here in some of our thinking. He's, he's flipped things upside down once again. Right? He says, you know what? If I go on living, that, that's Jesus. But you know what? If I were to go on and die, if, if this were to come to the worst of the worst, and I never make it out of this prison, and they just kill me here for the sake of the gospel, then you know what? And it's to my benefit. It's to my gain. Now, once again, he gives the church a reality check. Because for most of us, we want to hold on to this life. For most of us, we're trying to find ways to prolong our life. But here's where Paul has gone totally crazy, humanly speaking. We got a guy here who says, I'd like to go ahead and die if it's all the same to you, God. Why? Because his reality may be different than the majority of our realities, perhaps. Paul's reality is that he is in such love with Christ and he has such a realistic picture of what this life is, the pain of this life. He hasn't numbed himself with all the pleasures, with all the materialistic things of this life. He's dealt with this life and all of its sin. He knows what's going on. He knows what's going on in history. He sees it very clearly. He says, you know what? Uh, If it's... If it be up to me, I'd rather just go ahead on and be with Jesus. Because this life here, something's, something's gone horribly wrong. Some of us don't realize it because we've numbed ourselves with the pleasures of life. Some of us have numbed ourselves with, with our careers. Some of us have numbed ourselves with our homes and our cars and our clothes. And we've numbed ourselves with, with numerous materialistic things to, to, to block out the reality that this life has gone horribly wrong. Paul gets that. Okay? Paul gets the fact that this life has obviously, due to sin, gone horribly wrong. And if it, if it were just up to him, if, if he just had his selfish way, he says, you know what, I'd rather just, I'd rather just go on and be to Jesus. And he's going to explain this. Look at the next section, verse 22. He says, but if I'm to live, and he qualifies that statement, if I'm to live, and he qualifies it by saying, if I'm to live on in the flesh, Because Paul knows that he's going to continue to live. Into eternity, he's going to live. But he's very specific here. He says, if I'm going to continue to live on in the flesh, that means if I've got to stay here on this earth, in my body, in my flesh, well, here's what this means. It means fruitful labor for me. What is fruitful labor? He's already said, for me to live is Christ. So for Paul now, he gets more specific. He says, for me to live is Christ, for me to live is what? Fruitful labor. He's going to explain that a little more. But he's going to compare first. For me to live is Christ. For me to live is fruitful labor. But I don't know which to choose. 23, he says, I'm hard pressed. I'm hemmed in. The pressure's on me from both directions. Having the desire to depart. That Greek word there, it literally, it's a word used when the military would break camp after war and they would go back home. It's also used as a, of a ship to untie their, uh, their ropes from the dock and, and drift out to sea. He says, I'm ready to untie from this life. I'm ready to break camp from this war and go back home. He said, so I'm hard pressed here whether to depart and be, what does he say, with Christ he gives us a reality check here. He says, for, for that's, that's very much better. It's to remain on in the flesh, verse 24, to, to live in this life as I am now. 
under duress, etc. Look at what he says here. Again, very interesting. This is more necessary for your sake. May not be the best thing for Paul. Paul knows what the best thing for him is to go ahead and be with Jesus. Full time in the presence of not just the Spirit, but the Father and the Son. But he's he's torn. He's torn. Now, let me be clear here. He's not torn between living here on earth in this wonderful life or going and being with God in heaven. He's not torn. Matthew Henry says the apostle's difficulty was not between living in this world and living in heaven. Between these two, there is no comparison. Catch that? The apostle's difficulty was not between living in this world and living in heaven. Between these two, there is no comparison. But between serving Christ in this world and enjoying him in another, that was Paul's difficulty. How is he hard-pressed? He's hard-pressed because he says, you know what? For me to stay here is Christ. It's fruitful labor for me. For who? What, what is fruitful labor? Your sake. End of verse 24. He keeps going. Verse 25. Convinced of this. I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. What's the benefit for Paul? To stay? The church. The gospel work, discipleship, it's evangelism. What does he call that? He says that's fruitful labor. How does he sum all that up? He says, that's living for Christ. My life is for him. Not only is Christ my life, but the gospel of Christ, the work of Christ is Paul's life. He's given everything to it. For him to live, it means to continue to labor for the work of the gospel. There's a song, Kenny Chesney's got a song out. You uh, Caribbean country fans know it well. Uh, it's kind of a catchy song, cute song. You've heard it. Uh, how's it go? Uh, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. You heard this one? Right. It's, uh, interesting, and I'm, I'm, not a, I'm not bashing the song. I get it. It's cute. I understand. Hey, you know, we, we, can, we have fun in this life, and, you know, we want to go to heaven. But, and I get that, so I'm not bashing it, but... But I thought about that song as I read these verses. Um, for Paul, there was no question. There was no question whether he continued in this life or went on to be in the presence of God in heaven. That was no question. The question for Paul, what he was hard-pressed about was, you know what, uh, this Christ, I've given him my life for to me, living is Christ. Fruitful labor for you, for evangelism, for discipleship. I've given my life to his work. Very ambitiously, Paul has done this. His debate is, do I continue in that work or do I go to be with Christ? He says, you know what, I'm convinced that, uh, that at least now God will have me to remain and continue with you. For your benefit. Now, very quickly, the last section of verse chapter one, he's going to allude to his concerns once again. And it's a very natural transition for him. 
from him saying that he's given Christ his everything, his life, even to the point of death. Now he turns to them and says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. What kind of manner is that? Complete abandonment to Christ. His prayer is that their their life is Christ. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And here's what that looks like. So that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I want to hear some things about you. I want to hear that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you. And that too from God. For to you it has been granted, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, past tense, Acts 16 in Philippi, and now here to be in me, present tense, imprisoned in Rome. Um, Paul's life was given to Christ because he loved Christ. Because he loved Christ, his life was the ministry, the proclamation, the exaltation. Verse 18, 19, 20 of Christ. That was his business. If he wasn't going to be about that business, Paul would much rather just go home to be with Jesus. Okay? Uh, Paul was not some spiritual hermit sitting in a cave, diving into deeper things about the Lord. If that's all Paul was going to do, I imagine Paul would say, you know what, I'd just go, rather go ahead and, and be with Jesus and enjoy him eternally. Paul saw the rest of his life in the hands of Christ, proclaiming and exalting the good news that he that he was so graciously bestowed with. He loves this church. Why? Because they weren't sideline Christians. He loves this church because from day one till even now, they proved to be a lot like Paul. Paul started to realize that their heart is a lot like his. His heart was to give everything to God. Until God calls me home and however he does that, until I get to go and just enjoy Jesus forever, I'll give everything I have to him. My whole life is his. There's no other reason for me to be here. He says, you know what? You've done the same thing. You've been participants. You've been partakers. Specifically, specifically, they were participants and partakers because they funded Paul's ministry primarily. They sent him encouragement. They sent him uh, they sent him ministers, Epaphroditus, their pastor, he's going to mention later. They sent him to Paul to minister to him, who almost died on his trip. All right. But primarily, they funded Paul's ministry more so than any other church, perhaps. And it's not about the money for Paul right here. All right. And I'm going to, this isn't my message on giving. You're going to get that in a couple of weeks. But let me just, let me just, in the context of this chapter, of Paul's life being Christ, this church's life is Christ. It wasn't about the money for Paul. Here's what it was. The the most precious thing to most of us, they willingly gave up for what? What's the key word you saw? The gospel. So that Christ would be proclaimed, in this I will rejoice. You've participated in that. You've partaken in that. 
I've got you in my heart. There's an old movie, uh, one of my one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, Deep in theology. City Slickers. Have you seen this? You've seen City Slickers? An old uh, Billy Crystal movie. It's a great comedy, uh, unique comedy. Billy Crystal always always a funny guy. But uh, more impressive in the movie, I think, who steals the show is uh, is Curly. You remember Curly? Jack Plants, old scary old dude, old rough leather faced cowboy, right? And uh, if you've seen if you've not seen the movie, I'll just give you a little summary here. Um, uh, these these city slickers, Billy Crystal and a couple of his buddies, they go out and they're going to go on this dude ranch and they're going to drive some cattle, I guess, across Texas somewhere, right? And uh, they figure that you know they 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 spend their whole you know year uh, living in the city and you know their life is pretty much in shambles and the whole story kind of unpacks how these three guys their life is just falling apart and uh, now they're out on this dude ranch trying to find themselves and there's one scene in the movie that that I'll never forget Jack Plants and Billy Crystal are riding riding through this, uh, through this desert uh, on horseback. And uh, Jack Plants just starts to laugh at Billy Crystal. And he says, you know, you city slickers. He said, you just don't get it. You just don't get it. You spend 50 weeks a year getting knots in your rope, and then you think you can come out here for two weeks and get them all undone. And he looks at Billy Crystal, and Billy Crystal is kind of scared of this guy and also in awe of this guy. And uh, Jack Plant says, you know what the secret to life is? Remember this? And Billy says, no, I don't. And Jack Plant, in his rugged face and leather-gloved hands, holds up a finger and he says this. Billy, a finger? And Jack says, no. One thing. Just one thing. You figure that out. And he added a couple expletives here I'll leave out. You you figure that out. Or I'd have shown you the clip. You figure that out, and nothing else really matters. As if to say everything else will fall by the wayside. Everything else will conform itself around that one thing. Everything else will make sense. Everything else will fall into line. And Billy Crystal, like the rest of us watching the movie, he looks at him and he's like, great, want that, just that one thing. It's the secret to life. And he asked the question that we're all sort of, you know, wondering, is Curly going to give us? What is it? What's the one thing he says? And he looks at him and says, that's for you to figure out. Billy's just sitting there looking at his finger like this. Um, The principle is true. Unfortunately, as humans, we we pin that one thing down to a lot of wrong things. Okay. Paul found what that one thing was. He found it to be Christ. And in Paul's life, he had given it over to the proclamation and exaltation of Christ. And he surrounded himself and he found joy in those people who would come alongside, walk in his footsteps, that come what may, good, bad, or ugly, I'm going to live for the proclamation and the exaltation of Christ. Christ was Paul's life. Everything else conformed around it. Everything else shaped itself around it. Everything else lined up behind that. Nothing else compared. He had no greater ambition than how his life was going to reflect the gospel and the glory of Christ. 
Paul loved these people because they were getting in they were getting into that game with him. Would that be the prayer of our hearts? Would that be true of us? Let's pray.